It's always wonderful when you begin a new book, and we go verse by verse here at Reverence Through Scripture, and the wonderful thing about going verse by verse is that as a pastor, you, you can't pick and choose what you want to teach on and what you don't want to teach on. You look at the text as it comes forward. Um, and the other wonderful thing about being a preacher of God's Word is the message is not mine. It's what God has to say. Um, my biggest goal is, is that is that you would not see me, but see Christ in Scripture, that we'd understand the passage that's before us and that it would just have a radical impact on our lives. And I, and I truly pray, I, I prayed this just now, but I, I mean it, that um, when you look at the goal of going through a book like Ephesians, um, the goal that, that is there is that the hearts of each and every one of us would find ourselves in the book of Ephesians just falling in love with Christ more than ever. That as a result of the study of the book of Ephesians, that our worship would be sweeter than it's ever been and that it would never go back to how it was before we studied through this particular epistle. And so I pray that it's a blessing to you. It has already been a blessing to me and... um, Pastor Don encouraged me to, to put together this sermon series and do the titles and passages for the entirety of the year. And so we have that done. And here is the first one as we look at 2019 and as we study the book of Ephesians. And so we're going to begin in, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 1 through 6. And um, let's read that right now. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. The first word of this particular text is Paul. We know a lot about Paul. We know that he once was a man named Saul. He was Saul, who was someone who had done many, many things that were wicked against the church. He was a Pharisee, someone who was a leader amongst the people, a leader amongst the Jews. In Acts chapter 7, it tells us that as the people... We're hearing the gospel that they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
The witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when, they had, when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen martyred. They're gnashing their teeth at him, charging him, picking up stones and stoning him until he's dead. But they laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named who? Saul. Here's this man who we're told in Acts 8.1 that Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. In verse 3 of chapter 8 of Acts, it says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. He was someone that if you look at his, at his background... He would take men and women and drag them off to prison, even to be put to death. In Acts chapter 26, he says, This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Did everything he could to persecute Christians. In Galatians 1 and verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. In Philippians 3.6, he says, Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But then something happened. I mean, you look at a man who's doing everything he can to kill Christians. To stop them from proclaiming the gospel. In Acts chapter 9 it tells us, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if, if he found any who were of the way, Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus And suddenly light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And then Saul arose from the ground, and when he, his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. 
In Acts 9.22, it says, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. What a radical change in this man's life, right? I mean, you, you have a guy that's on his way to Damascus, and he's doing everything he can to put Christians to death. Men, women, taking them out of their homes, bringing them back to Jerusalem to throw them into prison and to vote against them for that they might be put to death. Every one of us has a testimony here. Every one of us has a testimony of who you were prior to Christ saving you. Or you may be here this morning and you're not a Christian. And you know who you are. You know that there's sin in your life. For Christians, we, our eyes have been opened to know far more of the depths of our sin. Right? We, we, we sit here this morning and we think of, of our lives, whether it's 46 years or you're in your 80s or in your teens. Every one of us as believers looks over the course of our lives and we know As believers, we know without a doubt that we're sinners. We know that not only are we sinners, but we have no righteousness of our own. We've sinned in countless ways against a holy God, and we know that the wages of those sins is death. A little over 14 years ago, on December 23rd of 2004, I was chaperoned graciously by my sister Melissa and took Tasha to the Grand Canyon. Um, if you've never been there, it is awesome. There's a reason why they call it grand. It is incredible to look at, at, at God's creation. And it was there that I proposed to Tasha. And after holding her over the edge, she said yes. <laughs> And it, it was such a great, a great, great day. We came home and celebrated Christmas Eve the next day, and we celebrated Christmas with our families. And the next morning, we woke up to news that a series of tsunamis had hit Indonesia, Sri Lanka, parts of Thailand parts of India. And the, the devastation was horrific. I mean, it, it turned out that 200 and nearly 28,000 people died as a result of those tsunamis. That, that number is just staggering. And, and so on the 26th, it was dumping rain, just Dumping rain here. Harder than, than I can even think of in recent years as far as how hard it rained during those days following. I was supposed to run a soccer tournament in Chirico, and it was raining so hard, and weather said that it was going to be bad for the next couple days, and so I just canceled the tournament, bought a ticket, and flew off to Sri Lanka. Got there within hours of... of of this horrific event taking place to where we were still finding bodies all over the place on the beach. Just every morning there'd be bodies that had washed up onto the shore. And, and 
walking around and seeing what had taken place, I, I, I just, the, the images are so stuck in my head, I, I can't get it out, just the impact that that had on me. Um, mass burial sites, going to the hospital, seeing people that were in horrible condition, and then just seeing like rooms filled with pictures of people that had not yet been identified, thousands and thousands of pictures. I saw a train that, that had been taken and, and thrown by the second wave. Some, some parts of the train were 100 yards from the train tracks. People had panicked after the first wave and jumped on that train. There was, it's estimated, over 1,700 people had died on that train. Only a few survived. They thought, get on the train, let's get out of here. And that train got hit by the second wave. But the, the level of, of horror that a tsunami brings is something that I honestly will never be able to get out of my brain. When, when we're in places like Balboa Island or, or walking around in, in other areas or staying someplace by the beach, my, my mind goes to, if there's a tsunami... Or if the water goes back, we run, and we are going to run in this direction, and we are going to get to the highest place that we possibly can as fast as we can. We're not driving, we're running, and we will do whatever it takes to get off of this particular area into the highest place that we possibly can get to. Because being in a several-ton train will not help you. It just gets tossed like, like a toy. The thought goes through my mind of get to the highest place that you can, And if you can't get far enough, get to the highest place and hold on as tightly as you possibly can. Remember talking with a German man who him and his wife were there and they said that they they saw the wave coming and they climbed to the highest part they could and they held on within their building as hard as they possibly could. And they they held on and and he just said that that the wave came, submerged them completely. And he told his wife after after the water went down a little bit, you have to hold on because the water's all coming back. And when it comes back, it's coming back with stuff. And that's going to be harder than holding on the first time. And he was right. And they survived it, but it was just holding on to the thing that was anchored as high as you possibly can. And for us as believers, there is um, a knowledge of sin and there's a knowledge of the wrath of God on all mankind. And it's worse than any tsunami you could ever possibly imagine. It's coming. And when it comes, it will wipe everything away. And some will spend eternity in hell. And some will spend eternity with Christ. And there's the knowledge that, 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 that we must hold on to that which is at the very highest. And which is most solid. Who is Christ alone? There's tsunamis that hit our lives, whether it be sickness, disease, hardship, heartache. And, and you may be going through one right now where it just it feels like a tsunami. It feels like that. But ultimately, in this life, we must cling to him who is at the very highest, who is Christ. And who is most secure. As we look at our passage this morning, though, we find that as Paul writes to the letter, this letter here in Ephesians, you find that, that is, it's not a picture of us holding on and clinging 
to him, although we do that. But the peace that comes doesn't come with how much we're able to cling to him in the midst of a a wave of trials or a wave of whatever it is that comes our way. It's not a matter of how hard we cling to him when the wave of God's wrath comes upon all. It is a matter of the fact that he holds on to us. We are secure in him. He says, I, I have you and I, and, and I hold you in my hand. And my Father who's greater than all holds you in his hand. And there's no one that can snatch you away. Neither shall you ever perish. There's a security that comes in Christ. And we find that in our text that as Paul writes this, he's writing as someone who, I was a persecutor. Here is my testimony. Here are the things that I have done. And this is what God has done for me. And you get the idea as you go through this particular book that it is just worship that's taking place. He knows the wages of sin is death. He knows that the wrath of God is far worse than the worst of the hundred foot tsunamis that come in and wipe out whatever it is. The fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God But he knows where his security lies. And that is in his Savior, his sovereign God. And so Paul begins by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This is not his doing. And you're going to find this all throughout Scripture and all throughout this particular letter. That there is such a gigantic view of who God is and what he has done for Paul and for us. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, God determined this. To the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints who are in Ephesus, and if you come from other backgrounds, when you think of saints, you may think of people who have achieved a role of saints within the church, and that is not what this is talking about. This is talking about all believers, to believers who are in Ephesus or who are in any church. Christians. And faithful in Christ Jesus. There's faithfulness that's there in Christ Jesus. We trust Him. We cling to Him. We hold fast to Him for our salvation. He greets them by saying, Grace to you. And peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. We we write letters now in dear so-and-so. You write texts. What's up? How's it hanging? How's it going? The words that come from the Apostle Paul is grace to you. What do we need most? We need grace. Grace to you and peace. And where does it come from? Where can grace come from? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the only source of grace and it is the only source of peace. It comes from him. And so we see worship just beginning here. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. To worship him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us, how? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. Christians, this pertains to you, to me. We've been blessed with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Meaning that when you get to heaven, there's no good thing that has been withheld from you. None. And for us even now, no good thing has been withheld from us. He blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you may think, well, what are those things? What are the every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Well, we know that they come from one place, and that is in Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In Christ. It's not streets of gold and pearly gates, and it's not no more pain or no more sorrow. This is not the things that we're talking about here as far as in the forefront of his mind when he talks about being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It comes from in Christ, and it comes to those who trust in him, those who have faith in him, those who are saved. It comes in Christ alone. It's the only source of heavenly blessings. And every spiritual blessing. And so we start to see a list. Between here and verse 14, it is one very large sentence. In the English, we break it up with occasional periods, but in the Greek, it's one very long sentence. And we will be taking this apart piece by piece over the next few weeks. But he begins with this. This is the first thing that comes to his mind when he thinks of the every. Spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It must also be noted that it's not the first thing that comes to Paul's mind. But it's the first thing that the Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to write. So when we look at these things, he's saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Just as, here comes the blessing, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's the first thing that comes to his mind when he thinks of the every spiritual blessings that we have in the heavenly places, it is he chose us before the foundations of the world, before any of it was created, he chose us. Now, I know that within the evangelical church today, I know that within the history of Christianity, this has been a particular topic that's just debated and debated and debated, and people have various views of this. There's some that hold views like, I don't believe in election. I don't believe in predestination. I don't believe in And I, I think of that, and I think you, you can't say that and say, I believe in Scripture. You just can't. You can't say, well, I don't, I don't believe in election. 
but I believe in predestination. It is intertwined all throughout the entirety of Scripture. You just read through it. I mean, from the very beginning in Genesis, all the way through to the book of Revelation, it talks about election. It talks about God's people. And so we, we, we don't have the liberty to say, like, I don't, I don't believe that. There's some people that say, well, I, I don't believe it like that. I believe that God looks into the future and sees the decision that we make, and therefore we are elected, therefore we are chosen. And there's those that say, no, I, I simply believe what it, this says and that he chose us before the foundations of the world. And I'll, I'll tell you that when you start to study this and you go through, there is, there is a level of mystery that is there for all of us. The Bible tells us that there's those things which are revealed. Um, but prior to that, it says there's the secret things that belong to the Lord. There's secret things that belong to the Lord, and then there's those things which are revealed, and they belong to us and to our children forever. And so secret things that belong to the Lord, I think it's totally okay to leave them to be the secret things that belong to the Lord. But those things which are revealed, they belong to us and they belong to our children forever. And so as we study these things and we look at these things, I I don't look at this and say he's trying to create a debate here. He's just making a statement. It's a statement that's being made here as far as he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us. Before he created anything, he chose us. The most helpful commentary on that particular doctrine is found in Romans chapter 9. Would you turn there with me for a moment? Romans chapter 9. Now, there's those that would hold to If you believe in election or you believe that God chose people from the foundation of the world, there's no need to witness, there's no need to proclaim the gospel. And I I would say that the writer of Ephesians, the writer of Romans, the God of Scripture, holds a far different view than that. If you look in verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying, Paul says. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternal blessed God. Amen. He begins this chapter by just saying, I'm not lying. I wish that I were accursed for my brethren. If I could be accursed and they could be saved, I'd do anything for them to come to know Christ. There is a passion for the gospel. There's a passion for the proclamation of the gospel. There's a passion in his life where it's, it's just this drive, regardless of what happens to him. I do not count my life dear to myself. He just wants to preach the gospel. But look what it says in verse 6 here. 
But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. It's not that God's word has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are Israel, or are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Stopping there for a moment, he's saying, not everybody who's Israel is true Israel. Not everybody that is Israel is God's people or are saved. Nor are they all children because they're the seed of of Abraham. And he says, because it says in Scripture, in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as a seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Okay? So if you're Jewish and you're reading this, or even as Christians, you're reading this, you, you, you look at this and it's saying, not all Israel is Israel. Not everybody that is of the seed of Abraham is true Israel. Right? And he gives the example of Isaac. It's in Isaac that your seed is called. It's in Isaac as far as the one who saved. And you have Isaac and you have Ishmael. Now, if you know Scripture, you know that you have Abraham. God tells him that he's given him a promise and that look at the stars of the sky, so shall your descendants be. Year after year after year after year go by, no child. Sarah's in a place of, or Sarai is in a place of, let me just give you my handmaiden, Hagar. So Abraham says, okay has a child with Hagar, whose name's Ishmael, and has a son. But God says, no. Sarah, your wife Sarah, is going to have a child. 90 years old. She laughs, right? The word that comes is, is there anything that's too hard for the Lord? And so we look at this and we say, okay, well, Ishmael's a work of the flesh. It's their way of trying to do it themselves. But Isaac is the seed that, that, that is the one that comes as far as the seed of promise. It, it, it was said it was through Isaac. And so they would look at that and say, well, yeah, Ishmael is the work of the flesh. Sarah would have a son, Isaac. But then it goes on and says, and not only this, but when Rebekah had also had conceived by one man, even by our, our father Isaac. So, not only this, but think of Rebecca. Rebecca and Isaac have two children, and they're twins, right? Jacob and Esau. And then it, it makes a note for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. That verse, it should speak mightily to all of us when we start thinking of this particular doctrine, knowing that there's some things that are mystery and there's some things that are revealed. We look at this and it tells us, okay, now you have twins. You have Jacob and Esau. They're not yet born. 
They haven't done any good or evil. It's not based on what they've done. It's not based on any of those things, but that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It's not based on works, but it's based on him who calls. It said to her, the older shall serve the younger. So it's not even based on who has the birthright. The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. Now, as we read those words, there's some that will say, well, it doesn't mean hated, it means loved less. Or there's some that say it's talking about two different countries. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, to me, it doesn't matter as far as how I want to try to defend this particular text, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. I know that when he says this, he knows that I'm going to respond with, I don't like that. That doesn't seem fair. I mean, you, you got twins, Jacob and Esau. I, I, don't, I don't like that you said that, Paul, or God. And so he knows that I'm going to think that way. And he knows that you're going to think that way. And so in verse 14, it says, what shall we say then? What do we say? What should we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? He knows that we're going there. Jacob I loved, Esau I've hated. What do we say? Is, that doesn't seem right. Is there unrighteousness with God? And then the response is, certainly not. And all of us go, good. I'm glad because that kind of bugged me for a second when I read that. I didn't like that. And so we're like, good. He says, certainly not. And then we look at his response. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Well, that's not what we were looking for in the answer. I mean, as far as the way that humans think, as far as is it fair, is it right, is it... God determines what's right. We don't, we don't get to judge him like that. And so when he says, is there unrighteous with God? Certainly not. It goes from there to, God says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy. It is God's determination. I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. So then, it's not of him who wills. It's not of him who runs. But of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. So we think of Pharaoh and we think of the hardness of his heart, and it just says, He has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. And when this is said, our inclination is, okay, First I asked, it's an unrighteousness with God. You said certainly not, but then you said that Moses, God said to Moses, he'll have mercy on whomever he'll have mercy, and he'll have compassion on whomever he'll have compassion. And it's not of him who wills, not of him who runs, but God who shows mercy. And so you just said he has mercy on whom he wills, and on who he wills, he hardens. And so that doesn't seem fair. I mean, if Pharaoh's going to spend eternity in hell, but God hardened him, or God had mercy on one, 
It doesn't, I don't know that I like that. How does he, how does he throw Pharaoh into hell if he didn't have mercy on Pharaoh? Or how does he allow Moses into heaven if he was going to do that according to his own desires? So he knows that we're going to think that way. And he says in, in, in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Why can he still find fault in Pharaoh? Who has resisted his will? And God knows that we're going to think that way. So here's his response. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And that's his response. Who are you to reply against God? And so in the midst of studying this particular doctrine of election, or God chose us from the foundations of the world, we look to passages that are clear, and this is clear, because it knows, he knows exactly what we're going to say when he says stuff like that. And we see his response. And if you come to the point after what we just read, as far as like, well, how does he still find fault? Or... I don't understand all of this and how God works it out. I know that in the end, we're going to say, just and true are your ways, O God. But how does he still find fault? There comes a place where it's, who are you to reply against God? Are you in a place where the thing formed, say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does the potter have a right over the clay to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And I think there comes a place where you just look at it and say, I may not understand all of these things, but there are certain things I do know. And that I am not to be in a place of, I don't like that about God. Or I don't agree that he does that. Or I'm going to reply against him in this way. Or I'm not going to believe in the doctrine of election at all. Or it's, him who wills or him who runs because it says it's not it's not based on our performance it's not based on what we've done and so I think there comes a place where we rest in his sovereignty but we look at the book of Ephesians and let's go back there because this is not something where Paul's looking at it and writing these things saying wow the, the, the doctrine of election that's, that's something that we really have to struggle with he's saying these things as far as This is something for us as believers that ought to make us just love him. It is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and it begins with the fact that he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. He chose you before he ever created this world. Before he ever created this world, he knew you and chose you unto himself. And he chose you that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. I love that. To know that 
God, before he ever created anything, he knew me, he chose me, that I would be holy and blameless. Are those two things precious to you? I mean, however you want to look at election, as we've read through, we've looked at different texts, and we've just, in the time that we have here this morning, we're just scratching the surface on, here's two main texts that talk about this. We could spend weeks just going over this, months. But to come to a place of however all these things took place, to know that before the foundations of the world, he determined that I would be made holy and without blame before him and love. I need that. I don't want to stand on my own holiness. And I don't want to try to figure out a way for me to become blameless. Because I can't. I'm guilty. The Bible tells us that every mouth will be stopped. All of us are guilty before him. But to think that a sovereign God, before the foundation of the world, determined that the gospel would be proclaimed, that Christ would come, the gospel would be proclaimed, the hearing of the word would come in such a way that of all that the Father had given him, he'd lose none of them, and and, and that he would work in such a way, the Holy Spirit would work upon my heart and Make me who was blind able to see and to change my heart and take my heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. And I'd be in a family of Christians. I'd be surrounded by believers or someone would preach the word to me in some way. And I would believe and I would be saved. And, and then to look back and say, determined before the foundations of the world that I'd be holy and without blame before him in love. Glorious. Because there's a lot of times over the course of our lives that we know that we can't stand on our own when it comes to holiness and being without blame. I love that this is determined beforehand. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. He predestined us to adoption. So the next thing that he brings up is you're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in that He adopted you and me into his family. So when he's thinking of the the things on the forefront of his mind and the first things that the Holy Spirit inspires as far as the spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, you're chosen and he predestined you to be adopted. He chose you to be holy and blameless. He predestined you to be adopted, to be brought into his family, to be his sons, to belong to him, to be heirs of Christ, joint heirs with him. He determined this, predestined that that would take place. And we just we think of this and say, it's, it's not because I was a cute kid that he wanted to adopt. I wasn't seeking after him. I wasn't desiring him. I didn't have any righteousness of my own. But he predestined that I would be adopted into his family and these are the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that God did this. And why did it happen? We get into some mystery here. I know why. I know reasons that I know aren't why it happened. It's not because he saw something good in me. It's not because I had righteousness of my own. It's not because I was really seeking 
It's not because he saw that I would be a, 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 good, a good fit. And it's not because I was simply lucky. He says he predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. What I know is it's not about me, but it is about him. It's according to the good pleasure of his will. You sit here this morning. Those who trust in Christ, have faith in him, cling to the cross. Your hope is in the gospel. But when you look back of the spiritual blessings of these things, to be able to read something like this, according to the good pleasure of his will. He found pleasure in bringing us to salvation. He found pleasure in adopting us into his family. According to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Why are you here? Why am I here? It was according to the good pleasure of his will. It's to the praise and the glory of his grace. It's all grace. Brothers and sisters, it is all grace. It's all grace. We know that, don't we? That's why we thank God for our salvation. That's why we pray for God to change hearts. That's why we pray for God to save people. Bring them to salvation. Please, Lord, bring them to salvation. Because he is a God who is sovereign. And it's to the praise of the glory of his grace to where our hearts ought to just be like, I praise you, Lord. Your grace is glorious in that it saved a wretch like me. You did it. You get all the glory. He made us accepted in the beloved. By his grace, he made us accepted in the beloved. We're just starting this book, and these are the first two things that he brings about as far as the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. What ought this do to us? Well, I hope it doesn't stir up within us just a desire to debate. It's okay for things to be left mystery. That's okay. But I pray that whether there's things that are mystery or whether you see things to be revealed, the primary thing is that we as a congregation say all the glory goes to him. However it worked out, however things took place, all the glory goes to him. It was all grace. So when we partake in communion, we recognize that we've been made accepted in the beloved, been adopted into his family, been made righteous, saved, sealed till the day of redemption. Eternity with Christ. The tsunami of God's wrath 
was placed upon Christ. You know, we are saved. Verses 1 through 6, he's not stirring up a debate. He's just making a statement. He's thanking God that God chose him before the foundations of the world and that God predestined him to adoption according to good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And so we partake in communion on a morning like today. And as we partake, we just say, it's all you. Like I, I, I come forward and I, I take the elements and I take the bread which represents his body which is broken for me. And it means everything us to us when we say that his, his body was broken for me. For me. His blood which represents the new covenant new covenant of his blood. It was shed. The precious blood of Christ was shed for me. For me. And we remember him. All the glory goes to him. All of it goes to him. When I said that we go, as we go through the book of Ephesians, our hearts are going to be affected to the place of just praising him. It's because the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this letter to bring us to that place. Grace to you. Peace. From God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heaven places. He did it all for his glory according to his good pleasure. He has made you and me accepted in the beloved. And however you want to read that, I think the reading's clear that all the glory goes to him. All of it does. And so I, I pray that, that, that when we say partake in communion in a, in, a, in a worthy manner, that it is you and I sitting in these pews confessing sin, knowing that he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but at the same time, just thinking upon the grace of God that we are here. Not because we climbed to the top of place and held on. But because he carried us to the top, the highest spot. And he held on. And he will hold on. until the very end. I need that. You need that. You don't want to go through the tsunamis of this life or the tsunamis that of God's wrath in the day of the Lord in your own strength. You will not be able to stand in that day. But to trust that you have a Savior whose body was broken and his blood was shed, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Praiseworthy. And when I say praiseworthy, I mean with 
all that is within us. Praiseworthy. Will you pray with me? Lord God, as the ushers come forward to distribute the communion elements, may we find ourselves loving you for your grace. Loving you that according to the good pleasure of your will, you would adopt us into your family. To the praise of the glory of your grace, you would do these things. That you will to have mercy on us. That you have made it so that it is a gift that comes from you, so that there is no boasting that takes place in this congregation as we partake in communion. There's no boasting. Not in our flesh not in our works, not in our abilities. The only boasting that takes place is in the cross. Our only hope is in the cross. And whether we feel like we've been able to wrap our brains around such precious doctrines like the words in Ephesians chapter 1 or not, may we find ourselves knowing that all the glory goes to you. And may we love you for it. I pray that, that, the, that as we worship you in song, make the words come from our hearts and be a beautiful aroma unto you, a sweet aroma unto you. And as you partake in communion, may the hearts of the saints here at Reverence Bible Church be overflowing with gratitude and thanksgiving and praise and reverence and awe, amazed at our God that he would save us. Paul, a persecutor of the church, putting Christians to death, dragging them off to prison, and then we could go through and put our names there in his place. Maybe we didn't do the same things, but the weight of sin that was upon each one of us was enough to damn us in hell for all eternity. And yet you carried it away as you died on the cross for us. May it make us just praise you. partaking of the elements in a worthy manner, hearts that are full of thanksgiving and praise unto you. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.